بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم peace and love everybody I'm brother Ali this is the Travelers Podcast thank you for being here and if you listen on a regular basis I want to start out by just talking to you we just had the year end you know wrap up and that's a time that I think a lot of people take that opportunity to reflect to look back to take inventory and i looked back over the statistics the numbers for these episodes i'm i'm not a big numbers person that's not how i relate to meaning and that's not numbers aren't what really makes me feel good but i have to say that looking back over the numbers of course in certain episodes we're going to have a spike in listenership because sometimes the guests we have have a platform of their own they've got a really dedicated fan base or supporter group or listener community of their own they just follow them wherever they go so if you have Dr. Cornell West on there are people that check for everything that Dr. West is doing and they're going to listen to the podcast that week and they might not listen every week or Amanda Seals or uh Resma Minikim or Slug from Atmosphere or Vinny Paz or like these are people who is part of the the people that listen to them it's part of their identity that they support this therapist or thought leader or artist. And so when those folks are on you're going to see a spike. But there's a a large and growing number of you all that listen and are here every single week regardless of what the topic is, regardless of who the guest is, regardless of whether or not there even is a guest. Sometimes I turn these mics on and I just chop it up with you about what's going on with me for a couple of hours. but we were able to look back at the statistics and the numbers for the podcast and if you go to to digital streaming services or digital service providers they'll actually give you this like well manicured presentation of your last year so it'll be like your year wrap up you know conclusion uh you know presentation it's all these moving graphics and stuff like that and they tell you how many listeners you had and that number can be daunting be like this many people tuned into your podcast it's like dang that's a lot of people and then they'll say this is how many minutes they spent listening to the podcast the cumulative number of minutes and that really touches me because those are moments out of human beings lives that they never get back that's a lot of time these episodes are usually 2 hours and so it's a i can't remember the number but i couldn't even look at it for long i was like shy and i felt almost embarrassed and it really gave me a renewed commitment of like everything that we do on this thing has to be of benefit it's got to connect the hearts it's got to be true it's got to be genuine it's got to be sincere and it has to have a very sincere intention of focusing on the meaning of what are we here to do it's a very short time between womb and tomb you don't get to do it again and every minute that leaves is a minute that we don't get back so if we spend it well and if even if we use those moments to prepare for good then those moments are well spent you know and and so it gave me a renewed focus Another thing that we saw me and Brendan BK1 who's the producer of this podcast and we're partners in Travelers Media is that for a lot of y'all we were either top 5 of the of what you listen to on streaming services or number 1 for a lot of y'all we're your number 1 podcast and there are people that listen first thing every Monday morning when these joints drop and 
that's something that really matters to us. Like Brendan and BK1, we were also partners in my career for the first 10 years. He was my live DJ. So every time you saw me on stage from 2000 till 2010, which is the formative time of building this career, like he was with me, you know, from very early days performing for not sold out crowds in the Red Sea and, you know, these little hole in the wall spots in the Twin Cities all the way up to the point where we're on the main stage in Coachella and, you know, Brother Ali is a, the, the entity. <laughs> Brother Ali, the act, you know, that's the, the language they use in the industry. But the act, Brother Ali, is a headlining uh, thing, you know what I'm saying? And he was there for all of that and very instrumental in all of that. And what always meant the most to us is like, doesn't matter if we have the biggest audience, uh, we're not even tripping about what those people look like or what part of life they come from because it's so diverse and it's so broad. The spectrum is so large. But what matters to us is like, are we doing things that matter in our heart? Does this feel like it's worthy of our time, of our time away from our families? Is Does this feel like it matters to us? And does it really matter on the same level to the people that are listening? And so for us... That's extremely meaningful, and I just want to take the minute to let you know how grateful we are for your being here with your heart and with your time and with your attention. It really matters, you know what I'm saying? It really means a lot. Um, and not to shift gears into like selling stuff, but, <laughs> but I also wanted to mention that we've got a caravan. You know, the caravan is our subscription service and we always keep our joints free, but we also always want to offer other levels and ways of connecting. And so uh, the caravan is there. There's a $5 level where, you know, that really goes a, a long way to supporting the work that we're doing and to keeping the lights on and to keeping things going. That $5 level means that you get the episodes early uh, you also get them without ad breaks, and you also get early access to the things that we offer. And then also there's a $25 level. On a $25 level, we do the Ask Me Anything episodes. Uh, there's digital gift boxes that we release, things like that. Um, and then we also have uh, a group called the Trailblazers. And that's a smaller group, you know, but that level, we have an open Slack channel where we communicate all the time, uh, you know, really beautiful community of people that's developing there. And then I also wanted to mention that we have merch. If you go to brotherali.com, you'll see that there's Travelers Podcast merch. The logo for this podcast was designed by a brother named Mark from Medina Hip Hop, uh, who was really inspired by Chuck D's lyrics, Most of My Heroes Don't Appear on No Stamp from Fight the Power. And so he made a stamp with Chuck D on the front. And then he started to create a series of all of these artists. So there's an MF Doom one, there's a Lauryn Hill one, there's a Rakim one, and he made one of your brother. And it, and it really mean, meant a lot to me and is dope. And so I actually asked him, like, can we have the stamp that'll work for the Travelers podcast? And we use that as a logo. So shout out to Mark from Medina Hip Hop. Check him out. Uh, you can find all of his work online. And he's got really dope. You could get his stuff as wall art. You can also get it on hoodies and sweatshirts and T-shirts and all that good stuff. Super dope. Shout out to Mark from Medina Hip Hop. And thank you so much for your contribution. He came on when this was just an idea and created that stamp logo. 
but we've got merch for the podcast. And um, <clears throat> I just wanted to mention that there's a viral video that's been going around uh, on social media. And whenever listeners get it or like people that know the podcast, they always send it to me. So there's always like a few people that send it to me every day. But it's this dude who like, he walks into his girlfriend's uh, yoga class and he's got a saxophone with a traffic cone jammed into the bell of the saxophone and it makes it sound like the like synth bass lead sound on a what do they call that like like dubstep or something you know what i'm saying you know that wild like wah, 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 that, that thing that the bass does on dubstep like he's able to make his saxophone sound like that so he busts in in the middle of his girlfriend's uh <laughs> yoga class it's like these people didn't try to do yoga and he comes in and goes bah, 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 bah. and they pan around the room and uh, the lady that's in the front in the yoga class is wearing a traveler's podcast t-shirt so that's really dope and uh, just wanted to shout that out this episode is a little different because most of the people that we talk to are friends of mine uh that are you know most of them are artists but we also have all types of guests on this podcast most of them are people that i know and this one is different because I got an email from somebody that I didn't know and from a name that I didn't necessarily recognize right away. So the guest is Mort Burke. And when that email came through, I'm like, man, this sounds familiar, but I can't put my finger on exactly who this is. And he basically said, like, hey, I'm a big you know, listener to your music. Um, and also he's a fan of the podcast. He's like, a, I'm a comedian. I just recorded my first stand-up special, and Kevin Hart is releasing it on his channel. <clears throat> and he sent me the actual special. So I'm like, all right, I'm a huge fan of comedy. love comedy. A lot of my best friends are comedians. I love the comedic process. And I even enjoy mediocre comedy for, for, for its own reasons and bad comedy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I love comedy. So I'm like, yeah, where'd I get us a chat? I'm telling you, the second that I push play on this thing, I'm like, yo, this is really special. Like, th this dude seems to have recorded this thing at the exact right time in his own development, in the development of the material. He's in the right room with the right audience on the right night. It's really very, very difficult to capture a comedy performance into a special. It's really hard to do. I've been around people that have tried to do it. It's very, very challenging. And I'm saying some of the greats record them and re-record them. You know what I mean? It's one of the things that makes like Richard Pryor live on Sunset uh, so powerful because of the fact that it's not a perfect performance. You know what I'm saying? And it's not a perfect night. Like the crowd is a little rowdy. He walks out on stage and there are people that have that are still up, you know, using the bathroom and getting something to drink and the crowd's kind of rowdy. He's got to settle them down before he can even get into his thing. It's one of the things that makes that so amazing because like, man, this is Richard Pryor on a in a not perfect situation. Like this is just a regular day of Richard Pryor. But I mean, Dave Chappelle has reshot his specials. You know what I'm saying? It's a very common thing for people to get to the point where they feel like they're ready and then they film it and it's like, I don't know if that was the one. Let's try it again. And so to watch this Mort Burke special and I'm like, I don't even know who this dude is. His name sounds kind of familiar. We probably have friends in common, but I'm not even sure about that. 
But the second I hit play on this thing, I'm like, yo, whatever this dude is about to talk about, he nailed it. He captured it. He captured that moment. And in any art form, when you're hearing somebody's first record, it's like, man, maybe this music isn't necessarily my cup of tea, but if somebody captures that particular moment of just electric energy and the right place in their development where they're ready to show you what they got, it's a really special thing. So the special is called Spiritually Filthy. And I asked him, like, what do you mean by that? You know what I mean? Uh, it's a 35-minute special, which is a unique amount of time. But I'm telling you, man, the guy came out and killed it. And so when he sent me the email and said, hey, I would love to be on a podcast, I couldn't help but respect that. And so we connected and we had a really great conversation about all things comedy and just art related and the spiritual reality of being a creative person and trying to make it and all that good stuff. So usually I'm talking to people that I already know. Uh, but I'm, I was really grateful to have been able to make this connection. And uh, I believe that this special is going to drop in February, but please keep an eye out. We'll make sure to mention it also when it drops, but was really grateful to connect. You can go right now and look on YouTube and you'll find Mort Burke, M-O-R-T-B-U-R-K-E. You'll find him on stage doing his thing. I mean, there's like 10 years. It takes a long time to get to the place where you're ready to shoot your first special. And so you can watch him working. You can follow him, you know, little things that people have posted. I'm telling you, none of it's going to compare to this special that, that drops. But, uh, you know, we're just dealing with a very, very dedicated and really gifted practitioner of the art of stand-up comedy. So enjoy this episode of the Traveler's Podcast. We're brought to you as always by the Zakat Foundation and by BetterHelp online therapy platform. Check this out. So this is the first time that somebody has reached out about being on the podcast that literally the only thing, I mean, I guess a couple of people, other people have too. Like there's someone that's working on a documentary that sounds really cool um, that they're like, hey, I want to, you know, I'd like to be on a podcast. And there have been a few other, I can tell that some of my rapper buddies are just kind of like, hey, have you heard my new project? Let me know if you ever want to talk about it sometime. And I'm I like, that's, that's <laughs> fine. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but when you hit us up, man, I had heard your name before because I'm friends with a lot of comedians. And so I was aware of you. But when you sent your new your new special, it was really dope. Like I'm like, yes, yeah, 35 minutes, a really, really bite sized amount of time. You know what I mean? And so I put it on and I've, I've watched it three times. It's really dope. That is man. incredible. It's really, dude. really good. I'm Brother Ali, I'm, I'm touched. It is a privilege and an honor to be here. I was uh, deeply shocked when I got an email from you. I felt like I was just throwing out, it was a shoot for the stars situation, you know, and, and when you emailed me, I was just uh, so excited. So thank you, dude. That means a lot. Well, and I just really respect like how much, so I've got really close friends that are comedians that I watched from almost the beginning of their careers to the point where now they have Netflix specials and, you know, touring the world and things like that. And just the amount of dedication that it takes to, to become decent at stand-up comedy. You know what I mean? And just like the gut-wrenching, you know, the, the way you have to expose yourself to the critique and just the hatred of other people. 
um, to be able to just get enough time on stage with a mic in your hand, looking at a room full of strangers, just to get decent at that art form is really incredible. But then much less to be able to put together five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour, an hour is really amazing. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about, because like deep down, Dave Chappelle said that, you know, rappers want to be comedians and comedians want to be rappers or musicians. And he said that most of the rappers that he knows are funny and most of the comedians that he knows really understand a lot about music. And there's a lot to do with timing and language and delivery and, you know, like really putting a lot of thought into very specific words and syllables and consonants and how things roll off the tongue. And there's so much time that we put into that stuff. But deep down, it's true. Like I wish that I could do stand up. You know what I'm saying? I'm 90% sure that I'm never going to try it. But what I was thinking about is like people, the second you stand up, so like if I stand up with a microphone at a meet and greet or something like that, and they think I'm like this heavy rapper, like I'm a political battle rapper or whatever, people that think I'm going to get up and be like, the government is this, and everyone should embrace Islam because of this. And if I say anything remotely funny, usually I stand up and I say the same line all the time. I'm like going to ruin it now. But like people are always standing in the back of the room. So I get the mic and I'll be like, hey, albinism's not contagious. And just like let it sink in. So that I'm like, come to the front. And you yes. know what I'm saying? People, it, like if you're not expected to be funny, but you are, people love you for it. But the second you make that claim that like, I think I'm funny. People hate you for it. And like you like you have to like there's something that we that that there's something that we despise so much about the claim of I think I'm funny. Like can mm-hmm. we start there? Like what what's your experience with that and and what have you th- what do you think about that? That's a good point. Yeah. I, I you know, you saying that makes me think thinking about it from an audience perspective, like, look, all my friends are funny. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. My my buddy made me laugh this morning. And then this random stranger is going to, it's basically like you're getting on stage saying like, the subtext is I'm funnier than anyone you know. Right. <laughs> Which right. is like, if, you, if you're like me, I know a lot of very funny people. You know what I mean? So there, there can be this element of like, prove it to me. But then it's like any other crowd. I'm sure it's like a you know a crowd being a musician is like sometimes they're just hot and they they think you're funny already and you start rolling it and when you say the first joke like I love your I, that's your opener dude you have your opener you know what I mean right, and like right, right. and then the the way you said like pause for the laughter that's like a real mm, that's a mature way to hold the joke I feel like you know what I mean of like I know this is funny we're just gonna wait until you get it okay you got it now we're moving on with that you know what I mean. Um, so yes, that's true sometimes. And of course, like you said, putting time together can be devastating. You know what I mean? Going up there with no, I, I basically have all new bits now, right? Cause I burned all my stuff in this last special. So I'm just going up there with new stuff and trying new, um, trying on new voices. Like I want to, I want to switch it up a little bit. I feel like my, this kind of theory that working theory that I have right now that is maybe that is unproven which is like, I think it'd be interesting if comedians changed in the way some musicians do. Mm. Um, like this is my new, this is, I'm going to try a 
soft rock album for no reason. You know what I mean? Just because yeah, I yeah, listen yeah. to like soft rock or something. I want to see what that sounds like. And I'll say one more thing too. I love what you said about the timing aspect of it. I think that's so true. And also I think there's a melody aspect to it mm-hmm. in the same way that like, a, a, you know, I'm a fan of your work. I'm imagining you probably hit a similar note consistently with your voice and it sounds good to us and we want to hear it again. And I think it's the same way with comedians. You know what I mean? They hit this certain melody, Bill Hicks, whoever you're listening to, you start to really familiarize yourself with the rhythm and the melody of the sounds that they're making, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's amazing. And it's one of the things that like really great artists of all, of any ilk, like in any genre, any art form, they do that. Like they have different waves of their career. You know, um, like there's that series that's, I forgot what streaming service it's on, but it's like two or three episodes about Carlin and just like really exploring like the different phases of Carlin, like the early suit and tie dude. That just is what comedy was. So him and I mean, Richard Pryor was doing the same thing. And, you know, so many people started out doing that like suit and tie. Like, you know, funny thing I was noticing today when I was coming into the so-and-so, you know, and then they start being counterculture and avant-garde men and like that whole thing. And then um, for Carlin and Pryor, like a lot of them really develop into like, wait, what do I want to say to this world. Like now that I've mastered being funny, I've given people a reason to listen to me. Something about comedy has allowed me to observe human beings in a way that I think is unique. And so now what do I want to say to humanity now that I've got the microphone? Like something bigger tends to come along with most artists. And that's a tricky, that's a tricky part, man. That, <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that that like social commentary version of the artist, man, it doesn't work mm. for everybody. I'm not sure if it's worked for me yet or not, to be honest, man. <laughs> that's, that's a dude, and I, I watched that that documentary too, so fascinating, because see, there, there, I think if I'm remembering correctly, there's footage of him and of Pryor and Carlin together on those variety shows looking like you're saying very buttoned down, you know, and it's it's amazing to see where they both went and that, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the ability to, yeah, learn the craft and then the way they both tip prior being like, okay, I'm going to talk about myself now in this really open, vulnerable way that is like, oh, A, it's, it reinvented the game, completely changed the way people thought about speaking comedically on stage and it made you love him so deeply. Yeah. You know, it's really powerful. And, and you're right. It's like, I think that's what we're all looking for. How can I get to that point where I have that level of articulation, speaking about the things that I actually care about and make it funny? Maybe. <laughs> that's the hard part. Yeah, it's tough. And I think, you know, it's it, and everybody's kind of got their own relationship with it. Like certain people figure out how to do certain things earlier than others. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see people that are like really funny and then Man, I you know, I never want to diss anybody on this podcast, but I remember the I remember when you know Aziz Ansari kind of got like when it was kind of the Me Too thing happening, and Aziz Ansari's name was in it, and then you know Aziz was always this like silly, quirky, like oh my god, da, 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 you know, and then suddenly Aziz is like sitting on a stool. <laughs> and I'm like, no, <laughs> like, nah, man, like, man, he was never my favorite comedian. I never was mad at him. I'm just like, man, this dude is like, 
he really is just trying to make everybody have fun. You know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. that's not my particular brand of funny. Like he's here right. trying to be a a clown and like make, make everybody laugh. There's nothing wrong with that. But man, when I saw him sitting on that stool, I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no man, not yet. <laughs> that's how you know we're serious when we're the weight of what we're saying forces us to sit down. <laughs> we can't yeah. even stand for the whole thing. But even that, but even when somebody like tries something and and in my mind that one didn't land. Like it was so Chappelle, it was so like and Chappelle's had so many there are so many different Chappelle's as well. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you know, two two thousand one, like, hey guys, that's not the same Chappelle. Like that was like <laughs> Right. You know what I mean? That that was like yeah. you know. Bugs Bunny almost, you know what I mean? Like I know Bugs Bunny was like a real big influence on his early, just the way he was on stage was like Tony Woods, Bugs Bunny, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, but, but man, yeah. Which like even just to share that with us is so generous, I think, when he said that. Like that's one of my main influences early on was Bugs Bunny. You're like, dude, that's because, I don't know, it's just incredible that level of honesty. <laughs> Be like, yeah, and, and it's so true. Like the stuff you watch when you're six years old is, of course, going to f- inform the way you start to make people laugh, you know? Yeah, and when an artist tries something and it doesn't quite land, and of course it's just my opinion that it didn't land. Because I think that... that um, you know when he when he did his most recent one, um, where I think he's in a cellar in New York, Aziz Ansari. I that was my favorite one. I was like, man, he mm. had to have that sitting on the stool thing, not quite land right. But there's something mm. so amazing as an artist, especially about seeing someone try something new and it doesn't yes. quite work. I'm just like, man, I almost like, and he put it out anyway. And there's just something about that that I, I really love. And then, because I'm like, man, it made me, it, it, it endeared him more to me. I've never met him, never been around him. But then when I saw the one at the cellar, I'm like, okay, this, it's my favorite one by far. I, uh, yeah, I love that point. of Because everybody's on a continuum, right? It's all a practice. So exactly like you're saying, if you try, if you try something and it doesn't work, it can, it can feel like total artist failure. But then when you have a, and I, you know. And then when you have the courage to get back on stage, those aspects of your craft or performance ability you learn in that thing that maybe didn't hit right, carries on to like a new level of strength that you experience in some way. That's why the like the continuing to get up and try thing is so like important and courageous, you know. Yeah, I've I've definitely had moments where I tried to come out as a new iteration of myself, especially on stage. And most of the time I've like fully committed to it. But there was one time where I abandoned it so quick. <laughs> like I've done it a few times, you know what I mean? Like I started out as like battle rapper dude and then I became battle rapper um, that like hanging out with Atmosphere, like they taught me that we should be writing songs. We should try to, like you could still be a battle rapper, but try to make it a song. And then when once you do that, you start realizing like, oh, I can, the more of my heart I, I put into this, the better. So I made that transition and that felt really good. And then I started realizing like that moment where people are listening to me and so I want to say something and that felt really good. And then I got more into my spiritual practice and I wanted to introduce that. That felt really good. But then I started hanging out with Evidence out there in LA and he's going through, there's like this whole area of hip hop, Alchemist and 
um, Rock Marciano, and there's like a whole new wave, especially for artists my age, that are doing this like really stripped down, um, lo-fi, like really back to basics thing, where a lot of times you just rap directly over the sample. It's not this big produced thing that a lot of us were chasing, you know, in the in the early part of the 2000s, and, and so I was like, I, I spent a lot of time with Evidence in his garage doing that, like really exposing myself, like learning all of these artists and getting into that. And f I was like feeling it. And I was like, yes. And then me and Evidence went on tour together. And I came out on stage and the whole audience is there wearing these like big, the observatory and stuff like that. And the whole audience is there and they're expecting me to do these big songs that everybody can sing along with. And I got like my hat pulled down and I'm doing this like lo-fi thing. And I, man, I, I, I stuck it out for about three or four shows, man. And then I just, I went to my DJ and I'm like, just do the whole old set. We, I think we, I think we ended up with one or two of those new songs and like that we added to the set. Mm -hmm. But it's tough, man. Yeah, three or four shows is actually a really long time. You know what I mean? Like, cause that could that could be a, an hour on stage, and is it working? Feels like ten years, you know? Man. So what was the like? What was your entrance in, into stand up? Um, so I didn't. I started doing comedy in two thousand one in St. Louis. Uh, I started doing improv and sketch, and then when I moved to Chicago, I started doing stand up in like probably two thousand seven, something like that. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Did mm -hmm. Did you stick with improv? Like, did you ever do Second City stuff, or like, what was the I, I did a little Second City, a little bit. I went on their stage a little. There's a theater called Improv Olympic that I did a bunch mm -hmm. of stuff at. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was, yeah, yeah. Did you, have you been there? Yeah, so I was on teams there for a long time and a, a theater called The Annoyance, which is like a little bit kind of the more strange avant-garde theater in Chicago when I was there. Like, um, we'll do a comedy show and you'll be throwing hamburgers at us for no reason. Like, just like weird, let's do the weirdest thing <laughs> that comes up like a second. <laughs> I love the way you're shaking your head. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's not cool. <laughs> like, yeah, I, don't, I couldn't, I don't know about that one. Yeah, yeah. So that was, but it was an interesting, I, I did, we did weird stuff. I did like musicals over there, like all kind of, that was kind of the fun thing of like, you could try anything you, you want. So that led, that led to a lot of like freedom and experiments that didn't work and all kinds of stuff, which is like, I think, it may be important for my development as, as whatever, you know, whatever it is that I am today, like the ability to try it and fail, like we're talking about, you know? Yeah. So what was the, like, what was the transition like in terms of being able to, just those like early years of building your standup, like what were the clubs, what was the scene, who were the people that you were with? Like, what was the, how, how often were you able to work? Like what's the, cause I, mm. I think we hear a lot about, it's so dope. Like podcasts have opened up so much about comedy for like the average, like lay person to learn so much about it. So we hear a lot about yeah. Boston. We hear about New York. We hear about Mitzi and Mitzi Shore in LA. But yeah. I mean, in terms of like Chicago, other than second city, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like we don't know much about like, what's that circuit like? What's the grind like? 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, so I was doing a ton of, of shows at Improv Olympic and Annoyance, so I was always on the train back and forth doing like written stuff at Annoyance, sketch shows, then doing improv shows at Improv Olympic. We'd be rehearsing a couple times. We'd rehearse once a week, do a show once a week, then I'd also be doing shows at the Annoyance, and then I'd be getting on open mics when I could and doing stand-up at like little weird cafes and stuff that would have open mics. There was a, and there was a, it was something called Chicago Underground Comedy at the time. I did shows for them. Um, but yeah, it was just like, probably like, like New York or anywhere else, just bouncing around and getting on stage wherever I could, you know, four or five nights a week. Um, and, and there were like, I don't even, I guess there was a Zanies there, but I was definitely not doing like club work at the time. So I was really just doing these kind of low rent open mics all over the place, just trying to get on stage like five, 10 minutes at a time, you know? Who were the people that you were looking up to, like in Chicago? Was Hannibal? I mean, Hannibal Barris was doing his thing. Like, who who are the people yeah. that you that like you had to look up to? And because you got you, there's you have to look at somebody and like have somebody to to at least give some sort of blueprint or pave some sort of path or at least somebody to compare ourselves to. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there was this. So I think though that 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 generation was right ahead of me. So it was mm -hmm. like. This dude, Kyle Kinane, Pete Holmes, Hannibal, definitely, were all these people coming out of Chicago that I think, like, started to move towards L.A. when I, or New York when I got there. So it almost felt like there was a little bit of, like, a space filled. Then I was working with people like, like Thomas Middleditch would do improv with us. T.J. Miller was doing some stuff. These are kind of like my peers. Like, I did a show with A.D. Bryant, who ended up being on SNL, stuff like that. So there was people running around who were all, like, on the precipice of sort of starting to really, really develop um, their, what would become their voice. And it was cool because it was a, nobody was really looking at Chicago at the time. Like nobody had gotten on SNL from there for a very long time. So it felt like this really, really insular, contained community that was very serious about mostly improv. I was kind of breaking off and doing a lot of stand up too, but so it was this beautiful experience of people really doing sort of purely for the experience of doing it. Like nobody was worried about their commercial agent or like getting signed or anything like that while I was there. And uh, so it was really, I think it was kind of a singular, really interesting time to be there. Man, that's dope. That's like the, that's the, you really can't ask for much better than that. When you get a group of people that are all, you know, like really reaching to be creative and to pull something out of themselves and out of each other when you really just, you know, have that kind of like pure group desire to just figure something out and be great. Yeah. And like, and do there's, it's really interesting because there's this, I always think that I'm friends with this lady named Lauren Lapkus and I don't know if you know her, but she's amazed. She's done all kinds of stuff in all kinds of TV shows and did a movie with David Spade that's on Netflix. She's amazing. But I, I think she started doing improv in Chicago when she was 16. So it'd be this experience of like, you'd be doing a random show and see the funniest person you've ever seen in your life. And you'd be like, I don't, I guess they're just going to stay here, like in Boys Town in Chicago. No one's going to ever see them. And then 10 years later, like, of course they're on television. You know what I mean? Not that, not that that's the mark of someone who's talented, but it, it was, it's cool to watch that um, level, level of talent really, really explode and kind of get, get what they deserve.
We've had the great honor of being in partnership with the Zakat Foundation since day one of this podcast. Uh, my man Sage Francis tells me that I talk too long <laughs> and my head breaks. And I'm sure he's right, you know what I mean? But this stuff matters to me. But I'm going to try to I'm gonna try to get to the point. Zakat Foundation is a global charity and a global humanitarian organization. They don't just drop off food and take pictures and leave. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a big, major global industry, it's a, you know, and there are certain ways of doing business and operating that seem like they could really get you to the bag quicker. I mean, you know, those nonprofit organizations oftentimes have people within them who are, in fact, profiting. And it's not that they shouldn't, you know, it's not that they shouldn't, those people that do that work, that really master how to connect goods and services with people they need, they deserve to live dignified lives as well. But some of these global NGOs and humanitarian organizations, some of them are just run by big corp, by like a big corporation. It's hella corny, it's whack. And I don't like giving to them and I would never name them, but... The Zakat Foundation is not that way. The Zakat Foundation is run by a small, dedicated team of people. Many of them are first or second generation immigrants from countries that have experienced colonization and civil war and drought and famine and poverty and, you know, all sorts of really serious challenges. And so they're people that are really connected to the folks that, that they're looking to serve. It's also a Muslim-led organization you know, that's where a lot of the energy and the resources come from because Muslims have this obligation to share uh, with people that don't have what we have. And so, you know, that's, that's a large part of it. But they don't use their work to proselytize and they don't only serve Muslims. And the way that they serve is just very organic. It's really done with a partnership model with the people that they're working with. So rather than just coming and dropping off a bunch of food, and, you know what I'm saying, or just dropping cash in somebody's hand and maybe you're funding some revolutionary group that is at war with another faction of society. Like, you can make things worse if you just go in there because you got the money and they don't, thinking that you're the expert. So, you know, I love the way that Zakat Foundation partners with the people in, on the ground and in the communities. I love the sincerity. I love the fact that they're creative in the work that they do. And it says a lot that they're sponsoring this podcast of this rapper, you know what I'm saying, who lives in Istanbul now, because of the fact that culture is such an, a really extremely important element of building movements. And so the fact that on this podcast we look to connect people from so many different walks of life, from so many different worldviews, based on our desire to seek good and to do good and to be good and to promote what's beautiful in all of us and connect based on what's best in all of us. That's the whole idea of being the travelers. And so the fact that they sponsor this, I mean, it's really incredible. You know what I'm saying? So go to Zakat Foundation. If you, if you look on social media, you can go to Zakat US. Online, you go to zakatfoundation.org. Check out the things that they do and find a way to get in on it. You know what I'm saying? I guarantee you will find somebody, no matter how much we're struggling, there are always people that can use uh, some of what we've been blessed to have. And for us to share even a little bit with them, it might be small to us, but it will be a lot to somebody. And that's why it's important to connect around the world, to connect globally. Because there is somebody that those few extra dollars that, that you and I might be able to spare 
that might not be a huge deal. Like, yeah, I can give five bucks, even though I'm struggling to keep my lights on. I'm struggling to feed my kids. But yeah, if I'm real, I I can spare $5. That $5 actually is a huge thing to somebody else somewhere in the world. You know what I'm saying? And that's a really beautiful reset for our own heart. So... All right, Sage Francis, I'm going to stop talking so much in these in these uh, ad breaks. But head to Zakat US on social media or zakatfoundation.org. Find a way to get down with them and much love to the good people of Zakat Foundation. Did you have somebody that you would consider a mentor or was it more of just the relationship with the community? Like, was there somebody that you could go and you know, seek advice from and, you know, help chart the way? Or was it just really working with the community more? You know, with, with improv, we had coaches or, or teachers. Like when, when you first, if you want to get into a theater over there, you got to start taking classes and then eventually like audition basically. So we would, I would have like, uh, there was a dude named TJ Jagodowski, who's one of the greatest improvisers and he coached by like level three. So you could really garner, a lot of like just influence as far as your stage work like this dude named Mick Napier who runs the annoyance he's just a kind of person who can immediately look at you and tell you what you're doing wrong I don't know if you've encountered those those people but they've seen so many performers over 20 years that they'll be you know I remember this got this man Noah Gregor Operas one time I came off stage and he goes uh you're too worried about being cool that's what he said hmm and, and it was harsh because we I tanked like the show had bombed. And I was like, yeah, I know. Like, I know what happened. You know what I mean? Like, but he was right, you know, and that's like uh, it's interesting when somebody kind of pegs you automatically. And then at what do they say? The truth will set you free. But at first, they'll piss you off or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in that moment, was it like, did it feel like a liberating, you know, there are some times where it's like, please, somebody tell me what I'm missing. You know what I mean? And then there are other times where when, when, when somebody points that out, especially if it's that real, you know, that it can be really difficult. Was that a, when you, when you are able to receive that kind of like direct coaching, do you, does it, does it, you have to sit with it for a minute or does it, does it feel like the, the key immediately? I have to sit with it for years. (laughs) <laughs> for uh, 10 years uh, uh. <laughs> like it could take me a long time it's taken me a really long time to be able to receive criticism i think in a in a productive way you know um yeah which i think is maybe just part of who i am like there's this element of like it's so funny this element of like don't tell me what to do this very like immature <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. like angry baby that lives inside of me you know what i mean it's like i'll i'll figure it out on my own and in, in some that's good. And that's also it's as in some ways, I think, stunted my my growth a little bit. Yeah. You know, when you talk, we think about being like trying to be cool. It's like that's such a that's such a thing for all artists, man, that like, you know, we we first a lot of the way that we learn to be comfortable on stage or, or even like showing up in the space is like <clears throat> I want to as quickly as possible get to the point where I'm accepted where I'm at least allowed to be here. Like at least I can get on stage and no one is saying that I shouldn't be on stage or I can get in a cipher or I can, you know, get in the circle or whatever. And and no one is saying you can't be here. So like get me to that as quickly as possible. And the the shortest distance to that point seems to be like, well, what are the acceptable ways of doing this? 
and you know how do I show people, you know the the the, you know the most confident version of myself or whatever's most polished, and sometimes like people that get there too quickly, or are mm. too good without having to work too hard at it. Like we've all seen those people that are just like, they're yeah. really good immediately. Those people almost mm. never go to the next level. Like it's very mm. rare for somebody who is like a some sort of, you know, prodigy right away that has all of the natural talent. It's very rare that those people actually take the next level of, of work to figure out, okay, but who am I really? What are the parts yes. of me that aren't accepted here yet? Because those are actually going to be what's unique about me as an artist. And so many yeah. of those people never do that, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and I'm thinking about it too, like the desire to be cool is such a young man experience, right? Like it feels mm. so important as a, as a kind of armor, right? And then, yeah, if you were so good that you can utilize that at like a very high level of your craft, then there would really be no reason to grow deeper into learning how to express who you are, right? Because you've already got all that figured out. Um, it's funny, I'm, I'm thinking about skateboarding. <laughs> I, like I grew up loving skateboarding. And there, it, there are some, there are some child prodigies who are so incredible, and then they never develop their own real style. And then, yeah. but when they do, when they, when you get, there's this guy named Guy Mariano, and when you get both, when you see them as a little kid, and then as adult, have this like maturity of what we call like trick selection. Um, uh, yeah, it's so it's so powerful when you do witness that, but it's really rare really rare which is fascinating yeah because the ego needs to be like we've got to figure out a way for the ego to 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 like get around the wall of whatever the ego is so if the ego is getting what it wants like the you know they they talk about it even in business where it's you know they say that some people just want to be able to quit their job that's all they want you just cuz they don't want another person to tell them what to do and like that's that's all they want out of their journey or you know they talk about on the street um like gym shoe hustlers, like sneaker hustlers. Like there are some people that are selling drugs just to buy sneakers. And the second they buy sneakers, they're good. And so that's where their motivation stops. And like for artists, it's like if the ego feels like everybody's looking at me, everybody's clapping for me, you know, and that's it, then that's it's going to be really difficult for a person to keep pushing. But if somebody never, like if somebody doesn't really feel comfortable in that space still, it's still just like, ah, there's something else in here, though. You know what I mean? That, like, yeah. I want to be, I want to, like, I want to really become more real so that I'm connecting with people on an even deeper, wider, more profound level. Like, the desire to be understood and not just looked at. You know what I'm saying? Like, the beyond yeah. attention, I want to be understood. And I don't think that that's necessarily more virtuous or less selfish. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, I've seen people come along after me that like I knew they were here to be famous, and they got famous. Like I've seen them. The people that grew up, you know, I, I remember when they were in a small room with 30 people coming to see them, and then they go on and and you know win Grammys and everything else. But it's like a person like that is looking for that. Whereas with me, like I want to be fully understood entirely and you know what i'm saying and so there are things that i won't do th that could you know maybe help get to another level or something like that because i'm like no that's not entirely me you know and i don't think that 
I don't think that my version is less selfish or more more virtuous mm. or more pure. Like it's it's more selfish on a certain level. They're like, yes. man, I, I want to be completely embraced and understood, and I, I need all my views to be part of this. <laughs> right. Hug every aspect of me, all of it. I need you to come up and give me a big hug. The part of me that's like pissed, the part that's terrified. And my, I'm always astounded when when they, people do that stuff to just get famous and it works. Where I'm like, how did you know? Because what if it didn't? What if you did all this stuff, like like a, a total lack of integrity and none of it worked? You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's beautiful. And and how it's it's also, it's limit. I felt I always felt this way about hip hop too. Like it's limitless. Mm. like comedy is limitless you mm. know and we're just barely beginning to scratch the surface that's why I like that when that special Nanette came out with with uh, this that woman from Australia and she just did such a beautiful job of like articulating some really poignant aspects of being a human being that we hadn't seen in a stand-up in arena before you know mm. and so uh, I love that. I love it all. Like you're saying, those are the kind of people who are like, just funny, that's it. Absurd, dirty, whatever it is, just hilarious. And then I think with all the stuff that's changing in our world, you know, <laughs> as an, I say that as an understatement, you know, there's also got to be new aspects of these different performance arts that that can grow and expose even more of what it means to be a person, you know? And I mean, you seem to have really figured it out, man. Like... Your energy, the second I started watching your special, your energy immediately was like, you know, there's a thing with like, even with somebody like I've, I've watched a lot of stand up on all levels and I really love it. I love it when it sucks. I love it when it's me. Most of it's mediocre, just like every other art form. Mm -hmm. The overwhelming mm -hmm. majority is pretty mediocre. It's like somebody who's figured out how to do it and like, oh, that's, that's cool. I'm not mad at that. But there is like a tension the second somebody grabs a mic when they start, even, even for me, and like I'm fully supportive. There's a tension that the second somebody is comfortable, it relieves my tension and it relieves the tension of everybody in the room. And you can just submit to whatever is about to happen. You know what I mean? Mm. That this is going to, like this, this person on stage, they got us. Like we're in good hands. And that's the way that I felt the second you walked out on stage. And the the energy that you maintained the entire time, like man, that was such a it's such a well timed um, the the pace it's perfectly paced, you know, um, just that that man the energy of it feels so pure. I completely believe there's there's no it's like complete suspension of disbelief. You know what I mean? Like there is a part of me that feels like you're saying all this stuff for the first time, which I know is part of the trick. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I believe every detail of every story. You know what I mean? At no point am I like, did he alter this? Or that's probably true. You know what I'm saying? Like the second you start yeah. thinking about that, about a, about a comedian or a movie or whatever, like I wonder if that part's true. Then it's like something has gone wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, man, I was yeah. in it the entire time. So I'm wondering, I mean... What is your what's your work process been? Like what is your what's your process for creating, for writing, for working, like for getting time? How, what's what's that process been like for the over the last 10, 12 years for you? 
Man, thank you so much, Brother Ali, for saying all that. I'm, I'm really touched. Uh, I want to sit with that for a second. I, he I heard somebody say, when, when somebody compliments you, say, thank you with your lips and thank you, God, with your head. So I'm, that's what I'm going to do right now. <laughs> so it doesn't go directly into my ego. Uh, yes, sir. I like to write, when I'm trying to write, write comedy, A, I'll, some people don't do this. I'll watch a lot of stand-up. I find that watching stand-up actually turns this part of my brain that reminds me I like to stay open to what's funny on. And I'll just, anytime a funny idea comes up, I'll just tap it into my phone. Like I'll spend, if I'm trying to put time together, it'll be months of being, you know, any conversation that I have with somebody, somebody that's funny or I said something funny or we're having a funny idea, I just tap it into my phone. And the next time I'll go on stage, which... Mostly out here, I mostly do open mics. Like, it's hard to get on stage in L.A. I find it quite challenging. Like, mm. that was the other interesting thing about Chicago, too. It's like the improv community was so deeply supportive, and that's why I really, really loved it. I think I was really looking for community. And out here, not that it's not. Like, I, there, are, there are so many incredibly gifted people out here. I just feel like maybe I'm starting to find some people that are a little more my community. I love what you said working with when you were working with evidence in LA, like you need community to help you change. You know what I mean? So I think I'm still kind of looking for that out here and, and I'll go on stage. I'll be like, all right, that, that three minutes worked right there. Next time I'm going to try that three minutes and add on to it. And then when that works, I got five minutes. And with this set, Man, I was sitting there meditating and I, my, my, uh, and I got out of the meditation and I was like, I should try and film all this material. Like I have a lot of material. I've never filmed anything. Like I've waited a long time to put on my first album. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting experience. And I'm grateful for it because it makes me feel like I have a good amount of perspective on the stuff that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so I told my, my fiance, I was like, I think I should film this. And she's like, I think that's a great idea. So and I knew it was going to be really hard to get um, a half an hour on stage consistently out here. So I was talking to a friend of mine, this uh, comedian named Naomi at Paragon. Have you heard of her? You would uh, love her, dude. She's so funny, man. She's She's got a really good, um, uh, what's the, I forget. David Letterman just put out this this uh, uh, series of television episodes on Netflix, I think. And, he, and she's got a great, it's called David Letterman Presents, I think. I'm probably getting it wrong. Anyway, Naomi Aparaging. She's brilliant. She's one of the best comedians working today. She goes, you should just do some Zoom shows. So what I did was emailed everybody I knew on, or uh, uh, got on Facebook, posted like, who wants to see a free comedy show? And then just started doing a series of, I probably did like nine or 10 shows on Zoom for like people oh from God. St. Louis, pe people from Chicago. That's how I put it together. And oh I'll God. tell you this, like, <laughs> it was hard, but it was also a little bit like training with weights. So when I was able to get on stage and do a bunch of time out here, there's this place called the fourth wall. I'll get to do some shows at, um, uh, stuff like that. It felt easier so that by the time I did get to go on stage and do tape that special, which is at my friend's theater, it's called the yard theater in LA. It's a really cool spot. They got a bunch of really great, comedy shows over there and i'm friends with the the family who owns it um it felt amazing like you like i what you're describing about the special i think i'm really grateful for i was able to step on stage and feel that level of support right away that sounds that sounds brutal <laughs>
I mean, doing comedy on Zoom, like I, I've watched a few of those. Um, mm. You know, I, I did watch some of those. I, I knew somebody, um, you know, I, I know somebody that put together, uh, shout out to my man Mustafa, who put together a, a group called Mint. It's like a, a group of comedians. And they had some online shows. And I, I watched them out of support, but I was just like, I, my heart was really, like I had complete utter respect for the comedians that were doing it. Because man, that 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 thing is so extremely. It just seems like so. It seems damn near impossible, man. Hmm. You know what I mean? That like you're putting yourself out there, and the the real such the big difficulty is like, I put myself out here. I stand on this stage by myself, and then I say things that are funny to me, and I have to figure out how to actually. How to, how to say it in a way and how to present it in a way that somebody else is also seeing this, whatever this observation that I have. And it has to mm. be my own by, by the nature of the craft. Like if somebody else has already done this or already worn this premise out or has made this joke, then I'm, I mm. suck. Then I'm a hack. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like I've got to I've got to figure out what is the most personal thing to me and then I've got to say it in a way that makes you not only understand what I'm talking about and the experience I had but you also have to get to the point where you laugh at it too which is really hard to do <laughs> and, but then doing that in a room full of people is difficult enough but but man just looking at a screen and trying to be funny at a blank screen man but that's what I'm talking about. It's like everybody that becomes great at what they do, they put in, like they're good, and then they put in just some grueling amount of effort into something that's not already worked out, like it's not already prepared for them. Mm. Yeah, and I don't, what do you th- I don't know what you think about this, but I, what I'm starting to learn as I get older too is the hard part, even if it's not going well on stage, like that's kind of hard. But what I do to myself after that, when I get off stage, that's what can get really brutal. Yeah. And I don't know if you, you've had that experience of like, cause I have a really, really, I'm working on it. And I think I'm starting to knock on wood, master my critical voice that lives in my head because it's so gnarly. And, and so I was seeing a therapist one time and she was like, it was before an audition, you know, I auditioned for TV shows a lot. I used to used to audition for TV shows a lot. She was like, how was it before the audition? And I was like, great. She's like, how about after in your head? I was like, oh, circus of pain, just unending like <laughs> violence in my head, you know? And she was yeah. like, oh, that's what, that's what we have to work on, which is, that's really beautiful. That's like a real, that's a deeply spiritual axiom. You know what I mean? Is like, nobody's going to hurt me as much as I hurt myself. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think about like those those really rough shows. There are some of them, you know, and Brendan, the producer of the podcast, was my DJ for the first like 10 years of my like professional career. And so we were, you know, doing stuff in little clubs around Minneapolis and then went on tour with Atmosphere before I had an album out. And so I was brand new to we were we were brand new to everybody when we stepped out on stage. And like when you tour with somebody that is people's favorite. And we've done a mm. lot of that. So I like I opened for Atmosphere, which is not easy because it's like we live our like Atmosphere is not as a music group to people. It's like that's a lifestyle, it's an identity. You know, and then we did it with MF Doom, who is the same way. We did it with Rakim, we did it with Wu Tang Clan, I've done it with Public uh-huh. Enemy, like and I'm saying like 
so it's dope to be able to to say later, like, yeah, open for yeah, open for all these people. But like when you're there in that moment, and especially most of these are like very pro-black, um, like classic hip hop groups, and they see yeah. on the on the on the flyer, like, oh, somebody I've never heard of named Brother Ali is gonna go on. And then yes. I walk out looking like this, it's just like, <laughs> get the hell out of here. Like, <laughs> like, man. Yeah, you see being I'm, sarcastic. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, man, what kind of mess? So, but man, wow. there was something about being able to do it with Brendan, though, that sometimes mm. the worse it was, the the more, the funnier it was to us later. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know what I mean? Oh. And for comedians, it's like, unless you're traveling with one of your really good friends, you know, like, mm. I mean, that's why headliners always like bring their homies to open for them. You know what I mean? So like, even if it sucks, like we'll we'll be able to laugh about it together. Like at least at least we can share the yeah. experience of the bomb together. Yeah, but man, that's why like the the diner is so important, or whatever. The food later on is just to like to decompress process yeah. that like oh, it was full of. And to me, I, I try to learn how to think that's funny. Like, there's nothing funnier than when you say a constructed joke to a room full of people and they just stare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And cough and look at their phone. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's so <funny>. Yeah. <laughs> Man. So okay, so like as a friend of comedians, you go to a, you go to a show, you're trying to be supportive. Somebody's work, especially if somebody's working out new stuff. If somebody does a joke and I get the funny in it, but it's on a head level. You know what I mean? Yes. Is it helpful or is it harmful to do the like, ha, 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 <laughs> Where it's like, ha, ha, I'm laughing. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. Like, don't, I want don't them to do hear it. it in the room. <laughs> I want them to know, like, this is funny. And it is. It is funny. It's yeah, not yeah. all the way there. Like, it's just an uncontrollable laughter. I'm saying, mm -hmm. ha, ha, ha. Like, I'm saying the words, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's nothing wrong with being like a generous audience member, you know what I mean? But you could have, what you're describing is definitely overdoing it of like, everybody on your feet, come on, who's not laughing and why not? Or whatever, you know right. what I mean? Like, right. Yeah, so I think being like moderately generous is fine because you, you can like, it's, it's so, it's interesting. Some rooms just need to get tipped over a little bit. I call it the funny hump. You're just trying to get over the funny hump where like, people are comfortable making a sound that other people can hear. Cause that's the other wild thing. If you don't get over that, you'll do a show. And if you can see the audience, people will be laughing silently. Right. You know what I mean? Right. When you're like, right. Oh, you're not right. Right. There's the, <laughs> You should open your mouth and let a sound come out. That would be helpful. Yes. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with going like a little titter here and there, you know? Well, I mean, um, man, it's, 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 and it's like the flip side of what your coach was saying to you. Like if an mm. audience has to give up being cool, mm. like the audience can't be cool. You know what I mean? The audience yeah. has to be like, you know, there's such a, there's such an amazing thing. So I, I had a, my favorite, I, I believe the greatest poet living right now is this man named Amir Suleiman. Um, you know, he works with Dave Chappelle quite a bit. We did a, um, they actually did a, um, Dave Chappelle put out a record vinyl of his 846 thing that he did about George Floyd. The B side of the vinyl is Amir Suleiman in Yellow Springs delivering this incredible piece. 
And so, you know, we both, me and Amir, both hang out with comedians a lot. There's like this whole circuit of like urban Muslim comedians that are all like friends and the artists, the rappers, the poets, the comedians, like it's a, it's a network we have. Um, and Dave, Dave Chappelle is kind of like the guru of it all. <laughs> and, and Yasin Bey, most deaf. Dave Chappelle and most deaf are the, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So they're, they're the yeah. ones that, that call the shots and like, uh, but they're, they're very beautiful, generous people. And also, they're also some of the greatest that have ever done it in their field. Uh, but I, but Amir Suleiman is that in poetry. Anyway, so he and I were talking and he, and, and just like, it's just two like poets or like rappers, like looking at comedians. And he was like, man, the, he was like, there's nothing like the fact that like one person has a thought and then says words. And when they say those words, it causes other people to have an involuntary, <laughs> like physical, like they can't control what their body is doing. Like they make ridiculous faces and sounds. He's like, it's almost like sex, man. It's almost like good sex to where like it, if you actually get to this magical place with it, like a person completely transforms and loses capacity. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, to, yeah. To, to be like the, the, you no longer can control how you're presenting yourself to other people, man. Right. It's like and also the, there's an element of like you got to let a wall down. But also, yeah, you're helping someone experience an involuntary body reaction. I I love this thing. I heard this uh, a, a while ago that was like the etymology of laughter. Supposedly, there's a bunch of mm. theories about this, mm. but they say that one of the first aspects of language that came along that was uh, that you made when something was interesting but not food and not dangerous. So you would go like, ha 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 ha, look at this thing. So I always think. When we're laughing, we're reminding ourselves that we're not frightened. And also, it's one of the earliest things that makes us human as well. Yes. So it's like deeply relieving, which is why I think people who have, certain, let's say, you know, people who have other issues, like there's this kind of archetype of like sort of the destructive, self-destructive comedian, right? Maybe somebody that has a lot of fear gets addicted to this sense of either laughter or helping other people relieve their fear through mm -hmm. laughter maybe yeah yeah it's a really it's a really amazing thing and i wonder how you feel about this but there's this comedy seems to be going through this this interesting thing and there's definitely like a slice of the comedic community um you know that that really um this kind of like anti-woke, anti-PC feeling that comedians have, you know what I mean? And it, it, it cuts across all kind of lines. Like it's not only older, like an older generation that feels this way. It's not only white dudes that feel this way. It's not only men that feel this way, but it tends to... <laughs> <laughs> but often you'll find it. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you know, it tends to lean towards older, whiter, male, but but it's not exclusive. You know what I'm saying? I mean, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so you got like Chappelle and D.L. Hughley and 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 um, you know, and Donnell Rollins and certain people that that feel that way that are that age and they're men, but they're black. You know, and then um, you got somebody like Michelle Wolf that feels that way. This 
white, but she's a lady, you know what I mean? And she's not the same age as those guys. But I'm just curious, like, um, and then you got other, and then you got other comedians that seem to be really intent upon um, being progressive, for lack of a better term. I hate these terms. Like I, the sure, terms are yes. the worst part of having these stupid ass conversations. The terms are <laughs> yes. the corniest parts about it. You know what I mean? Mm. Because it's like you, when, the second you use a term, you're attaching it to an entire framework that may or may not be what you're trying to communicate. Um, yes. But they're, 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 like, I wonder, do you, do you see almost like a, like a fork in the road in the, com- in mm. the, in the stand-up world? It's, it's interesting, man. I feel like with, with all of this stuff, hmm, how do I want to talk about this? I'll say that my influences growing up were people like David Cross, Patton Oswalt, Bob Odenkirk, Janine Garofalo. Um, like, you know, I love like Cedric the Entertainer and stuff like that. You know, I, have a big, I do have a big wide berth of people that I really love. But those people that I really gravitated to deeply, some of them were very political. Some of them were very like left. You know what I mean? For again, for lack of a better term, right? To me, it's the sort of, even the word politics is ridiculous because it's reductive, you know? Describing someone as like a political part of the political spectrum is reductive. But mm-hmm. that was always the stuff that was funniest to me. That was always the stuff that um was the most courageous to me. That was always the stuff that felt new and fresh to me. And and for me personally, when 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 somebody does this like <laughs> Gen Z or or whatever, you know what I mean? For lack of a better term, and part of the the filthiness, you know. But um, it touches. Uh, it makes me feel uncomfortable, and it makes me it makes me not. Uh, I don't feel like laughing usually when mm. people. That's just my own. That's my own personal thing. It's like you were talking about. There's stuff that you like, and there's stuff that you don't like, and. And I feel like comedy's always had this, there's always been an element of like uh like mm, male outsiderness. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do I describe that? Like, you know, in America, it's uh it's not it's not masculine to be an artist, you know? So I think people develop this tendency to come at it with a fair amount of like hostility to show like I'm a strong, I'm a man, you know what I mean? I'm a strong hmm. man up here. You know what okay. I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and 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 so to me, uh, some of that seeps into the stuff and I get it that it's fine. And sometimes it is really, really funny. And sometimes these people are inarguably funny. But sometimes I also. Um, uh, I just wonder if the anger is going in the in the right place. I, I feel like what it, being angry is a, is a natural part of a human being, a human being. And, and they say that anger is a reaction to a violation. Right. Mm-hmm. But some sometimes you feel violated when you're not actually being violated. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's bang. And sometimes it's fear. You know, a lot of times anger is uh, repackaged and repurposed fear. It's like, you know, I think especially like men are particularly given to this, but I think people in general are. But there's something about like if I'm feeling and experiencing fear um, rather than admit to myself and to others that that's what it is like feel fear feels weak whereas like anger feels strong so strong
This episode of the Travelers Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And when you use our link to sign up with them, which is betterhelp.com slash travelers, you'll get a discount on your first month of therapy and we get a commission for having helped to make the connection. BetterHelp is an online therapy platform. It's a database and a network of licensed, trained mental health professionals. And that training and that license is really important. You know, it's one thing to be able to talk to our friends about stuff. There are certain people in the community that are good listeners and that might be able to offer perspective. But I would submit that there's something about going through that training and also that licensure, not because the piece of paper makes something legitimate that otherwise isn't, but that that process of being licensed and being trained means that you've got a collective group of support and also accountability. That if you violate people's privacy, for example, or if you ghost your clients or something like that, you're really risking your livelihood. You know what I'm saying? So there's this communal kind of source of wisdom, of support, and then also of accountability. And those things are really important. I don't know if anybody still needs to be convinced that it's not only okay to go to therapy, but that for most of us, we would really benefit from it. But I do think that a lot of people, I think most people are on board with like therapy. Like Tony Soprano says, I understand therapy as a concept. <laughs> but I think that there's still a lot of misconceptions, partially because of the Sopranos. You know what I'm saying? My wife has a therapist where we watch the Sopranos. She's always like, oh my God, I hate that people think this is what therapy is. Because we watch it on TV and movies. And you know that a lot of times that's not what therapy is like. And then on social media, you got all these trends. So on TikTok, you know, it, it'll start to become trendy that people are talking about narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder or sexual kinks or whatever. And so whatever the thing is, my wife always says that like now all these people are coming to me saying, I think I have this, or I think my wife has this, or I think my father has this and like start diagnosing with whatever the popular thing is. And I just think there's a lot of misconceptions about what therapy is. So I uh, am a person that has a lot of barriers to therapy and, um, you know, I've got a spiritual practice. I've got a great support system. I'm very resourced, as they would say, in that world. You know, I've talked my stuff through with people a lot. I've done a lot of it in the music and on the podcast. But I still was finding myself in a place where, like, I'm having these patterns that I want to look into. You know what I'm saying? When I, when I have a similar conclusion with more than one relationship in my life or more than one situation, some of that's got to be me. And I want to, I'll be empowered when I figure out what is it in me that I'm allowing myself to get in these situations over and over again. It doesn't mean that nobody's done me wrong. It doesn't mean any of that. But there's something very empowering about being able to dedicate that time to looking at ourselves and to sitting with ourselves and to exploring and examining ourselves and expressing ourselves and doing it with somebody whose job is to serve us in that moment. You know, not just, a, uh, you know, our partner that we share life with, that like we depend on each other. There's, a co -de there's, there's like a interdependence there. It's different when you talk to somebody that's, they're just there to serve you in that moment and in that role. So I had a lot of need, but I also had barriers. Like I'd live outside of America. I'm self-employed. I don't have the regular uh, insurance. You know what I'm saying? So I heard about BetterHelp on a podcast. I went and I signed up. 
You go through a questionnaire, you choose your therapist, you decide when you're going to meet, you decide how you're going to meet, and then you just start chopping it up with somebody that's just there to help you get to the bottom of what you think about you. You know what I'm saying? Very seldom is it like, you need to know this because you were trying to please your mom and blah, where they're, they're trying to tell you about yourself. My experience is that there's been a lot of questions that allow me to explore my own narratives and my own views of things in ways that my patterns and my cycles weren't letting me do. You know what I'm saying? So like I get a, a different perspective on myself and that's priceless. So go to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P, dot com slash travelers. It'll let you know that we made the connection. You'll get a discount. We'll get a commission. You'll get therapy. You'll hopefully, you know what I'm saying, get a little get a little time to think. You know what I'm saying? Get a little space to to just sit with stuff. Get some tools and some, you know, techniques for coping. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Man, I know I'm going to be in this situation. I know I'm going to see so-and-so. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to overreact. I don't want to get mad. I don't want to be in a position where I got to apologize for losing my cool all right, well, let's, let, let's think about that in advance. Let's walk through it. What are the things that make you feel triggered? What is that? What happens in your body? How do you know that those things are coming? What, what are the, you know, and what are ways that we can prepare for that before it happens? Oh, man, that's dope. You know what I'm saying? It's a beautiful experience. Betterhelp.com slash travelers. Have you ever worked black rooms? Um, well, I should have prepared for this question. Um, <laughs> no, not, not too much. No, uh, I never did. <laughs> Me at chocolate Sundays would be tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah, it's real, man. It's interesting that like the, the different audiences also for comedy, you know what I mean? So like I said, like I, I'm, I've been close to, um, the kind of circle of of uh, Muslim comedians. Some of the OGs are um, there's a, a man named Preacher Moss, uh, originally from from DC and is now in Houston. But there's a guy Azhar Usman. Did you ever come across Azhar Usman in Chicago? Mm -hmm. It's a big Indian guy with like a big beard, Muslim guy. Um, but he he was doing the open mic scene a lot around that time, and he went on to to uh, write, you know, he writes for Rami Youssef and Hassan Minhaj. And then those were like our younger homies, like Rami Youssef and Hassan Minhaj. Uh, so like Mo Amr and Azhar Usman, and um, you know, that's kind of like my age, and then these younger guys coming along. But so I got to see them do these shows that were like very specifically, you know, like uh, Rami and Mo Amr doing shows specifically for like Arab rooms. Whereas like this is mm. gonna be like Arab comedy night or Muslim comedy night. And then, you know, Hassan uh doing shows for and and um and um Azhar Usman doing shows for like this is for people from the Indian subcontinent. So it's gonna be India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's interesting that that uh you know what I'm saying? That like within within the spectrum in the world of comedy, there are entire audiences and, and scenes of comedians that uh that are very specific, you know, to a to a certain community. It's really dope, man. Yes. That's so fascinating, right? Because it's all cultural. I think 
you you can't overestimate like how the the effect of culture on us and all the little observances that are specific to like the Indian subcontinent. You know what I mean? That that you could do to one room nothing, and you could do in another group of people, and it's the funniest thing they've ever heard. And like. And there's also this type of comedian that is like, I'm going to be funny in every single room everywhere forever, no matter what. You know what I mean? Yes. They're like, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to China. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go work for the troops. I'm going to do you know what I mean? And all that stuff. And and I respect that. I don't that's I'm a little too gentle for that, maybe. <laughs> and see, man, that's boy. why I would never front on somebody <laughs> like Aziz and sorry, because like even if like so I'm sitting at home watching on Netflix by myself or like I'm listening to him while I do the dishes or something, and it's not touching me. But I know damn well that any room that man is in, everybody's laughing. And if I was in the room, mm. I would be laughing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there are certain people like that that like it doesn't always translate. Like they sometimes those people translate though they don't translate well to like a recorded situation. Somebody like a mm. like a Sinbad, for example. Like you go back and watch Sin, Sinbad, you might laugh, you might not, but the reality is that so he might not always have translated to to that particular medium. Although I think he did, because I've I, when I was young I saw him. But if anybody that there's not a living person from any culture, even if you don't speak English, like if you're in a room with Sinbad, you have no choice. Everybody is laughing. The most jaded, like Doug Stanhope, will cry tears laughing at this dude. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. You know what I mean? Like, you're going yeah, to laugh yeah. at Sinbad. Yes. And, and too, like, the, there's also... Like, I, I went to UCB in New York a couple times when... Because uh, cause Aziz Ansari, before he did Human Giant, which was their sketch show, he crushed that entire scene. Like, just he was the top of the sh And he was doing a thing. He was like... he His whole thing was he's like, I'm not going to... um. I'm not going to do an Indian accent. Like anytime he would get, he would always get asked to audition for stuff and they'd be like, just Indian it up for us a little bit. And he'd be like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. You know? So he, and, and Parks and Rec, like he's, he's done a lot of wonderful work and he, Jeff Foxworthy, somebody that I, that's not for me. This dude spent 20 years oh, building yeah. his, his set and his act. You know what I mean? So just as a person who I look, and, and I'm not saying this, I'm not a saint. I'm judgmental as shit. And I try to, I'm just, as I get older, I just try to let that stuff go. Cause I also realize like, I just, anytime I'm judging somebody else, I, I am that, that voice is in my head. So I'm the one who's experiencing the, the anger, you know what I mean? And the lack of uh, compassion and stuff. And Satan is sucking your thumb. <laughs> man when you got to the point of recording that special first of all i i don't man i like i said i watched it three times i still don't understand why you titled it what you did yeah so i titled it spiritually filthy because there's a lot of I consider it to be a have a fair amount of spiritual stuff and it's filthy there's like dirty jokes through the entire thing yeah. Um, so that's why I called it that. And so when you got to the place of, I mean, like I said, you are incredible and the audience is amazing. Like, man, the, you know, like I said, from the second, um, from the be very beginning, like the early laughs, you know what I mean? Like, not mm. only was I happy and comfortable watching you, like I knew this was mm. dope. Like the second, that's very rare. You know what I mean? Mm. I knew like this the second you took the stage, I'm like, this is good. Like this is gonna be good. And I wasn't expecting that. You know what I mean? Part of the mm. partially because you reached out to me. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, who the hell am I? You know what I'm saying? Like, who am I? So like, <laughs> this, this dude is like reaching out to me. But man, but also I think the I could feel right from the very beginning that there's a good vibe in this room. This audience is good. They're receptive. They're already on the same page. How did you, was it just the selection of the room? Like, did you, you said you, you know the owners of the club. Did you work out in that room? Is that an audience that already knew you? Did you just catch the lightning in a bottle moment? Like, how did you get to that place? Yeah, there were a bunch of friends in the crowd. So I had, I, I definitely had, and I had home court advantage for sure. Cause I've done sets there. We used to do a weekly show there and all this stuff. So I felt like, I felt as comfortable as I could, as I could be. Uh, on stage and that's you know my goal has always been I want to be as funny as I am with my funniest friends like that level of naturalness that's I want to get there on stage if possible that's always yeah. been my goal so so I do feel like that that night it was it was able to happen and I'm just extremely grateful and and I reached out to you because you're one of the greatest rappers of all time dude. that's why <laughs> man appreciate that how many did you did you record more than one show and then edit them together yeah yeah we recorded did two in one night and and it was interesting too because most of the stuff comes from the first set like the second show is at 10 and you could tell the crowd was a little bit more worn out and it, it, i just assumed you'd be able to mix and match like as much as you as much as you want but there's only a couple little bits that came from the second show yeah, it's really hard. It's deep, man. So that, yeah, a number of my comedian friends, I've seen them, you know, re-record entire specials. And I mean, Chappelle has done it. Like, it's not mm. only, it's not only people that come. So, you know, Mo Amer has two on Netflix now. The first one was called Vagabond, and I watched him do that set without exaggerating between fifty and a hundred times over the course of like ten years. And we went to D.C. one time in like twenty thirteen or something. And had a full schedule and like a full budget and a production crew and everything. And we, he filmed that special in D.C. And Hassan Minhaj was there and um, Rami Youssef was there and Azhar was there. Like the whole crew was there. I opened like I was going to be in it. You know what I mean? And um, man, he filmed it and it, I thought it was great. And he was just like, man, that's not it. And so he worked that routine for wow. that, that same material for another like four years, man. And then he re reshot it in Houston. And so by the and time you, I could, you watching it, you were like, you were like, that's great. You couldn't even tell the difference, but he was like, that's not it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but then once I saw it, I could see why he did that. You know, mm, I could okay. see why, even though, I you know, I, I've seen these, I've seen a lot of that material so many times. It, it does make little shifts, and I'm like, man, I like the way it was a year ago. Yes, <laughs> you know right. What I mean? Little mm -hmm. nuances that I know about it or whatever. Um, but man, how did you how did you know that you were ready, and how did you pick specifically 35 minutes? Or is that just where it yeah. ended up? Or like, because that's a that's a really specific choice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I thought so. Again, I was. Let's see. I, it came from meditation and I know that's strange, but I have a pretty consistent meditation practice and it's a, it's a, you know, important part of my life. And I, and I was like, I should film something. And I thought I was going to do an hour. And I was like, I could put together an hour. I could do an hour. And then, and then I started thinking about it more. And I was like, I want it to be the amount that it needs to be, mm -hmm. whatever that is. Cause I'm not putting this on, on 
uh, NBC. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be a half hour. It doesn't have to be 52 minutes in case of commercials. You know what I mean? So, so I, that night I filmed about 45 minutes. And then when I went through to look at the edit, it just started to become clear that there were bits that didn't fit in the special. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we did a good job of there being a relatively consistent narrative and sort of a, an experience throughout that feels cohesive. Mm -hmm. And there were just bits that once you watch it, especially and my director, J.F. Harris, who's a great standup um, and a dude I've known for 20 years. Um, he said, like, I think we should pull this bit out. I think we should pull this bit out. And I was like, you're absolutely right, because they just didn't fit. So it was interesting. It was like, ha I don't know. It, it feels like sequencing an album or something. Yeah. Um, you know, of like, oh, this flows. And then this all of a sudden stops the momentum, take it out. And then now all of a sudden, this, these pieces that wanted to fit together really do. And I didn't realize that, you know. Did you sit there in front of the computer while they were editing or did you go over notes and then they would do it and come back and show it to you later? Yeah, the the latter. Our friend, this uh, dude, Gordy Earls, edited. He's a really good young editor and he would send me cuts and was pretty patient with me because I was really, I get pretty specific about that stuff. So like specific words or breaths or pauses and beats and things like that? Yeah, yeah. And there's where I would be like, I want to see this from another angle. You know, mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, even just this punchline, like if I want it to be closer here, I want to pull back for this thing. And it's, it's comedy is so much in the editing. It is psycho. Like it's, uh, you know, you can easily ruin a television show or a movie, especially a comedy through editing because like you said it's it's all rhythm so i i asked him to take out a bunch of stuff put a bunch of stuff back in it always feels annoying you know what i mean but but trying to really uh yeah just whatever hopefully put the quality of the piece first you know yeah how many camera angles did you did you have like three is that right three maybe four i think um, so yeah, one in the crowd, one on the side, one in the back, and then another row. So I guess four, and then another one that was kind of roaming. That was like an aisle stage left that the the cameraman could come up and down. And then did you like how much do you how much of your uh, when I have a great show nowadays? Like you know I'm like twenty years into performing professionally, and I'm to the point where. Um, I pretty much know what to do. Like in any situation, like if I want it to be good, I can make it good. Um, and the main thing to me now is like, how do I feel about, but I'm overweight. So I, I'm, I'm going to ask this question because I'm curious if this is a thing for you. <clears throat> for me, it's like, what, how do I feel in my body? Like, how do I, how do I feel? Like, how does my body feel? How do I feel like I look, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what's my ability mm. to move and breathe? And that also really impacts my voice. You know what I'm saying? Like how much energy I have and how... You know what I mean? So like I just did a year a year of touring and I really made sure for the first time ever that I was like eating right. I was in the gym. I really was in better shape than I've been in the last 20, you know, probably since I started. Like I still I, when I started, I was I was maybe at my lowest weight. But there's times where I look and I'm like, man, I'm in better shape now than I was when I when other people would say I was at the height of my career and I feel better on stage. I wonder for you, like you're not a person that appears to carry extra weight, you know what I mean? But the your your movement of your body is a big part of the way that you perform. So 
what's your relationship like with your body in performing in general, but then in terms of record, filming a special? Mm. That's a good question. Thank you. Yeah, I, this is, um, I, sometimes I sound so at Los Angeles, but I try to do yoga like fairly consistently and mm -hmm. I'm slacking on, I'm slacking on it recently, but that really does this strain. You know, it was originally a spiritual practice, right? It's the, the word yoga means union. And so it's, it's actually supposed to be a, a preparation for meditation. And so what I find that it does is it, it helps me process stuff emotionally through my body, which is a really strange experience to be like, oh, I was sad in my hips, I guess. You know what I mean? It's like this weird, confusing thing. And, and once I do that, I do start to feel, you know, kind of the emotions that I've experienced in my body start to lessen a little bit and I feel a little bit lighter. And if I'm doing stuff like that consistently, because otherwise I'm just like sitting on the couch and my body is just sort of like, uh, I don't even know how you would describe it, like codifying, <laughs> like into this kind of, yeah. you know, just like not moving enough. You know what I mean? And so uh, I do believe that like the human body is meant to move. I'm a person who can be really stuck in my head a lot. So, you know, I walk my dog, which is nice. I try to roll around on my skateboard a little bit and I do a little bit of a little bit of yoga. Not usually if I'm doing that, it's helpful. So what's does Kevin Hart have a role in your special? So all that, what happened, so it's coming out on 800 pound gorilla, which is Kevin Hart's company. So okay. Kevin Hart, and then they have a, they have a label called bad password and it's going to come out on that label on like, <laughs> yeah, it's good. That's, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean, encapsulation was the most frustrating thing in the modern world. Um, yeah. So so it's his, it's his label. And I got on that because my friend JF, who uh, directed, he's worked with this company before. So that's who's, that's who's putting it out. But he started this company as like, it's cool if you Wikipedia 800 pound gorilla, like they, they started as really a way to, um, to facilitate artists rights for comedians in the recording industry. Um, because comedians, as, as do musicians, obviously like comedians can really, they sort of get screwed over with the, um, the mark you know the rights to the material and stuff so they've so been is really that like cool the to plastic work with cup so boys like his crew of of artists like uh are those guys is that is that like basically like his label for his homies or is this wh i don't what do you... know I, yeah he's well they've got it so my specials will be coming out on their youtube page and they put out really consistent long form specials and they put out some really good ones they put out this dude kyle canane they put out oh, yeah. who else yeah, that he's his last one is on there. So they consistently put out like really good people. So I'm psyched to be um to be going up on their on their YouTube page in February. Did you engage with Kevin? Like was there ever was it a thing where you just deal with I the mean, company it, or were you It'd be an exaggeration to say that we're best friends, but we do um we party pretty hard. No, I've never met Kevin Hart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'd like man, to that, meet him. Like he's become such a such a Like he, I don't even know how to describe. Like, man, he's a he's an enterprise of in and of himself. You know what I mean? Like he is a yes, a really incredible force, man. Like within, you know, and that's just all the things that he physically and personally is involved in. Um, but yeah, I mean, also like I, I've heard so many stories of people that, you know, are are working or have been at like you know things that he's donated to or programs that he's helped get off the ground and mm. 
you know, like he he really is a he really is an enterprise unto himself. Yeah, he's a yeah he's a titan in the industry, doing stuff at the Rock in arenas. Yeah, he's like as big as you can get. Yeah, being so I mean you've been so generous with your time, man. I really appreciate it. You're in L.A. You know, when I'm in LA, it's it's one of the cities that I do the best in in terms of like drawing mm. crowds. Whenever I look mm. at my Spotify numbers, um, you know, it's usually Minneapolis and LA and Denver are usually competing for number one. Mm. But whenever I, and when I go to LA, like I've been selling out the same couple clubs for you know, fifteen years that I've been headlining, I do well. Um, but whenever I'm in LA, I always feel like I'm not cool enough. I'm not successful enough. I almost feel guilty for not being rich, just being in LA. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it feels like I'm. Yeah. It feels like I'm wronging. It feels like I've let everybody in the, that whole city down. Um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like rude. It, yeah, it's it's. Mm-hmm. I feel strange being there. Part of it is I'm albino, and the sun is just so like offensive there to me that like it's just and I I'm I'm I can't drive I'm partially blind so like that's a city where especially before Uber like Uber really kind of saved me in LA um mm. but man it, it's always a place where it triggers my less than feelings as a competitor in the entertainment industry which is my least favorite part of the job so for you like what are the like how are you uh how are you mapping out your trajectory and what will success mean to you what are the things that you um are holding on to in terms of like you know this is this is this is my course these are my own personal goals this is what i want it to be like and feel like and this is this is how i want to do it how do, how do you what does that look like for you and how do you hold on to that Mm, that's a that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, when I I think when I when I first moved here in 2010, I after maybe a year or two, I got fortunate to to I signed with a company and I started auditioning for TV shows and I started to get some TV show work and it was really wonderful. Like it was cool. I was on this show called Drunk History for a long time. I was yeah. on um I just got I just was able to do a bunch of really fun stuff and and my experience in, in TV work is actually like the people are pretty like grateful and kind like you hear horror stories but my experience is people are just psyched to be working kind of in their in their dream field you know uh, but that's that's the industry and I hear what you're talking about all the bizarre superficial frankly dark <laughs> energy that's around all that stuff you know what I mean because there's you could just there is this bubbling undercurrent in this city that probably a sensitive person can feel of like kind of desperation, you know? Um, I have a a spiritual friend who'd say that like the light is very light out here and the dark is very dark. Um, So I really, I like living here because it it has this strange, you know, dream factory feel. And also I, we just, I just left town for Christmas and like, I need to leave here sometimes. Like it's very important to get out of Los Angeles because you forget how that bubbling undercurrent is affecting you until you leave. And then you're like, oh yeah, none of it matters. TV doesn't matter. Movies don't matter. Comedy barely matters, you know? So, and then I, I'm not auditioning for anything anymore. And so I now had time to make this special that we're talking about. 
And so I would not have chosen to stop auditioning for things, but it was forced upon me. And I'm so grateful that it did because I think I'd lost some of my focus devoting so much energy to auditioning for so long. And I, I love I love being on set. I love when I get that work, but it's challenging and it's my heart is drawn more towards just straight up comedy. And so I'm trying to take it a day at a time and just relax into how I can't uh, how beautiful this whole experience is. It's beautiful talking to you. When this thing comes out, my hope is that it'll raise my profile a little bit and I can get a little more work and I'll be able to do another special. You know, that's that's what I'm thinking right now. Like not asking about numbers or anything, but on the financial side, like so many like working artists that, you know, by anybody's measure are successful. Like most of my friends, there's no denying that we're successful. Like, you know, we, whether we're independent or we had record deals at some point, you know, so some of my friends are people like Aesop Rock that have only been on small independent record labels, but there's nobody that would say that Aesop Rock is not successful. Uh, And then some of them are... Um, you know, like Freeway, who was signed to Jay-Z's label for a long time and then went independent later. Um, You know, all of us, like, we're successful, but I'm always curious, especially with people that live in L.A., like, what is your, like, financially, what's your relationship with, like, survival? Like, is, is is the concern about survival present? Is it in the, is it in the, rear view <laughs> like mm, mm. how how concerned are you <laughs> like financially about <laughs> n- just making it man like I, I i'm really always curious to see like how are people living and how are you doing mm. you know i i spent a long time really really living check to check especially those days in chicago just that like for me i would it'd be like all right i'm gonna drink beer or eat food and usually beer would win you know what I mean when I was a young man like that's how it always went and and I'm I'm very grateful that I haven't had to make that decision in a very long in a very long time so that's kind of where I stand with it right now like no there's never enough money to where you're like I'm good all right I did it I made enough money you know what I mean but uh yeah for now I feel I'm fortunate enough to like feel okay and it's very it goes like this dude it really really goes like this like 2013 to 2015 was like off the I mean I couldn't believe the amount of work I was getting and then it started to steadily slow down then I had to scale back on stuff and and uh and I almost think you know if you live through that kind of thing there's a level of humility and gratitude that that could can come from it if you allow it if you Mm -hmm. allow it to happen and I had somebody tell me one time, they were like, uh, the money's not yours. You're just holding on to it for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's how, I, that's how I try to think about it. Man, well, congratulations. I mean, like, you know, if I, I hope that this special is seen by everybody and I hope that people immediately really realize what I realize, which is that you are really, really profoundly good at something that is incredibly hard to do. Um, like, man, it's, this special is really, really dope. And so I was just watching a clip from Prince where he says, you know, any artist knows that the art in and of itself is successful. You know, then you put it out in the world and you got to deal with all these numbers and all this other stuff. But, and, and man, I just recently started, like, went independent and, like, like fully independent to the point where I see all my numbers and I'm trying to do it all myself now. 
And I still yeah. am not, I still have no clue about what's going to be successful and what's not and what that means and who measures what by what metrics. For me, just from artist to artist, man, you did it. Like your, your <laughs> special is dope, man. Your special is dope. It's really, really, really good. If nothing else ever happens, Gosh. like, man, you, you got that. Mm. So thank you, sir. And that man. was, that was my goodness. Thank you, dude. And that was, that was the gold. Dude. So that's, that's more, that's worth more than gold. You saying that. And I've spent this uh, entire podcast trying to not interview you about your work. And I think I did a good job. So thank you. Well, I spent the whole thing trying not to quote your jokes. Both because comedians hate that, <laughs> but then also it's not out yet. You know what I mean? So like the, That's right. You know what I mean? And, and that's the only way that I've related to you prior to the conversation. So I spent the whole time being like, don't say this one, don't say this one, don't say this one. If there's one that I can, that I, I love that you, and you, you put it at the beginning of the special too, but so I, I don't feel like it's too much of a spoiler. But when you say I'm 13 years sober... Clap or I'll relapse. <laughs> like, man, like you just put your finger on something that's so, like, man, I hate, I even hate saying things like, I have, like, on stage and being like, I have four kids. And, like, I, I wish I could tell the audience, like, and I've seen comedians be like, don't clap for that. You know what I mean? But there's something so corny and so, it's, like, way too easy and way too obligatory that, like, you have to clap for my sobriety. You have to clap yes. for my, the years that I've been married. You have to clap for I beat cancer. You have to clap. And it's just like, dude, it's just the, it's just the setup, man. That's all it is. It's just another setup yes. to another joke, man. But something about, like, man, you're really, like, your premises are really unique. And your way into jokes is those are the type of things that I really study. Is like how does a person like what is the premise and how does a person introduce that premise? Like that's where you yes. really see like how long has this person really been doing this? Yeah, but man, that yeah, one where I, you drop yes. that bomb and then you immediately, you know what I'm saying? Like man, it's so <laughs> great, man. Well, yeah, dude, I love that because I do the same thing. You know, in, in comedy, right? You never want to be hack, right? And to me. I don't know if you know Maria Bamford, but her setups are always the most unique. Yeah, I, thank you for saying that. I, that's my favorite too, is when someone has a premise that you've never even thought of. It's like, it's always profound to me, dude. Um, yeah, so thank you so much, dude. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, and the being pale thing in Hollywood is a nightmare also. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm always like shellacked in, in sunscreen. <laughs> like four yeah. layers of... SPF 100, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Man, it was really cool uh, talking to you. Thank you for reaching out. Yeah, just really grateful to connect with you, man. Great. Dude, thank you so much, brother Ali. So, so what a gift to talk to you, man. Thank you. Special thanks to Mort Burke, not only for this conversation, but also just for reaching out. You know, like that's something that takes a lot to do. It takes a lot of pride swallowing to reach out and say like, hey, I really appreciate your platform and I would love if you would share it with me. You know, that's something that I stopped short of doing a lot. And I really respect it very deeply. And especially when somebody reaches out and they're delivering the goods. Like the Spiritually Filthy uh, is the name of the special. The joint is just funny. 
You know what I'm saying? Like you're you're seeing a comedian who's really dedicated the time to mastering his craft and and to bringing it. And then also that conversation, I really appreciated it a lot. So much love and much respect and much appreciation to Mort Burke for reaching out. Uh, we're going to keep a, an eye out for when the special drops, and we'll make sure to let you know. Also, you know, you can check it and stay on top of it. Follow him on social media. I'm sure you'll see it and you'll see the promo when it comes out. I want to give a special thanks to Zakat Foundation and also to BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash travelers. See what's up with some therapy, you know what I'm saying, a self-care vibe. That's the move. You know, we're in a new year. It's a good time to check that out. Betterhelp.com slash travelers. Uh, special thanks to Emna Mirza, Mansour Panawala, to Last Word, to Darian Washington, to Shane Atkinson. Uh, shout out to Sage Francis and Aida Rashid uh, and to all of the folks that listen to the podcast. Shout out to all my people in the caravan and especially in the Trailblazers group. I uh, won't mention you by name. I'm not sure if I should or not. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it'd be cool to come on and have a conversation. That might be really fresh. But uh, shout out to everybody that supports this show. And uh, we appreciate you very, very greatly. Shout out to my man, Last Word, and to Ant, who did the song, and to Mark from Medina Hip Hop, who did the logo, and uh, to uh, Yusuf Fahmi, actually, who brought this microphone I'm talking in to back in his luggage from America a little over a year ago so that we could start this podcast because it was expensive as hell to try to to send one of these joints and order one on Amazon and have it sent to Turkey. So my man Yusuf Fahmi uh, brought one back in his luggage. So much love to Yusuf Fahmi. Uh, Traveler's Podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1. It's a product and a production of Traveler's Media. Much love to you all. See you next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.